Good morning. Welcome to Radioactivity. I'm Rob Lorai. Coming up today, we're going to speak with the German consul to Florida. We'll talk with him in a moment. He'll be speaking this afternoon at the St. Petersburg Conference on World Affairs. But uh, first, uh, just to mention that uh, the WMNF fund drive ended last week, and uh, we came up a bit short, but uh, in the last seven days or so, a lot of people have made contributions, and we're hoping that if you miss the drive, that you'll make a contribution to help this listener-supported radio station stay on the air. Uh, it's essential that we reach our goal, and uh, for the uh, public affairs shows, we're still a few thousand dollars short, so if you can, please make a contribution today at our website, WMNF.org, and help us stay on the air. That's WMNF.org. Uh, Laura and Cliff from Englewood, Florida, made a contribution. They love all of WMNF, and uh, they made a $180 contribution to WMNF. So, Laura and Cliff, thank you very much for that nice contribution. Well, the St. Petersburg Conference on World Affairs is in its eighth year this year. It takes place mostly in downtown St. Petersburg at places uh, around like the uh, Palladium and the... Uh, Tiedman College of Business on the USF St. Pete campus. We're going to talk with one of the speakers who will be there this afternoon. He's Andreas Siegel. He's a career diplomat, and he has spent time in the U.S., several times in the U.S., but previously he was stationed in Africa and in Southeast Asia and Vietnam. I spoke with him yesterday about... Uh, being the German consul to the U.S., and what does that entail? But we also got into discussion about German, uh, contemporary German life, and also the rise of the right wing in Germany. So here's that interview with the uh, German consul, Andreas Siegel. Andreas Siegel, welcome to WMNF. It's good to have you here. Thank you for having me. Tell me, what does a consul do? Well, a consul is working with the embassy, was uh, based at the capital. We have our German embassy in Washington, and we have seven consulates general in the United States. And so we are sort of a relay station for the embassy in the country because they can't cover the huge uh, territory. So we're looking uh, after sort of the well-being of our German citizens who are here in Florida. We have about 250,000 Germans That's huge. Uh, residing here. And about 500,000 tourists also coming. Mm -hmm. So that's what uh, sort of our consular uh, work is about in sort of uh, in, 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 in its uh, first meaning. And then uh, we are, of course, promoting our bilateral relations with uh, civil society, with uh, universities, with schools, and trying to do some work to improve the German economic uh, footprint in the States, uh, in Florida. German companies have already uh, invested, I think, in 30,000 jobs. Um, here in Florida? Here in Florida. In the States altogether, I think uh, we're up to 800,000 now. Um, BMW has, is, for example, the biggest uh, uh, U.S. car exporter. Uh, and they usually export through uh, Fort, uh, uh, Fort Lauderdale, uh, Fort Everglades. I've seen that BMW plant in South Carolina. It's mm -hmm. huge. Yes. And um, so the main quality of German industry is are the small, medium-sized uh, companies, not the big, the big ones. Actually, uh, we don't have that many in Florida yet, uh, but uh, it's my wish that we can improve that footprint a little bit more. What's the advantage to a German firm to uh, have part of its operations here in Florida? 
Well, it can have uh, a number of reasons. Uh, for example, just to have a uh, to get the foot in the door in the American market, uh, and the U.S. and Germany are. Uh, very, very big uh, trading partners for a long, have been a long time together. Uh, well, the EU and the US represent 50% of uh, GDP worldwide. Uh, and uh, uh, apart from the European community, the US is the biggest trading partner for, for Germany. When you say there's a quarter of a million uh, Germans living in the US part-time, I assume... Well, um, more, or more or less permanently, uh, not just snowbirds. Uh, so, uh, but some may may also have different residences elsewhere. Yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. does that speak to the to the uh, the, the strong German economy? Uh, definitely, it uh, it means that people uh, have the means of doing that, and buying a home in Florida is not just uh, just very easy. Not all the time, depending on where you go. Uh, but on the other hand, it also means uh, that uh, they have experienced in their life probably long winters and um, they like the sunshine and that's why they choose Florida. It's interesting. Uh, just I wanted to sidetrack just for a moment. Germany is a leader. Germany does have long winters, but it's a leader in solar power. Uh, yes, actually it used to be a leader. Now I think China has taken over in that, in that respect. Uh, but uh, Germany is certainly in percentage of um, of uh, power supply. Uh, we are among uh, the most advanced in solar technology as well, in the percentage of electricity altogether. Uh, you, you say that there's a lot of German tourists coming to Florida. What happens if a German tourist gets sick on their visit to Florida? Do they does the healthcare that they have in Germany does it cover them when they come to the U.S.? Well, and that's the best case scenario. Uh, and we always advise tourists to do that, to have an adequate insurance before they come here. Uh, there are a number of tourists, however, who don't respect that advice and who think, well, everything will go well. We'll just go to the beach and nothing will happen. Um, that's uh, That can be uh, expensive afterwards uh, because, uh, as we all know, uh, U.S. health Costs are quite, quite, uh, quite important. Do they get sticker shock if uh, they get sick and then uh, get the hospital bill? Uh, I, uh, I think so. And uh, well, I mean, our consular cases include indeed people who cannot pay their debt, uh, among others, uh, who have lost or have people that some someone has stolen their passports or their credit cards and so on. And uh, we try to find a means uh, with their family at home and so on to uh, to repair that those damages. Mm -hmm. uh, Americans grow up on a diet of World War II movies, so we see Germany as it was in the 1940s, or at least we Hollywood saw it mm -hmm. in the 1940s. What would Americans think if they were to travel to Germany today? What would they be surprised at if they saw Germany today? Well, I think they would be surprised uh, that they cannot watch Hogan's Heroes on German television, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, but they can see other funny movies, uh, and that um, since the Second World War, much has been done also because of the very generous aid of the U.S. at the time with the Marshall Plan. Uh, the German economy had recovered very quickly. And actually, that was a very revolutionary concept uh, by George Cannon, George Marshall, and the people at that time uh, that they would not 
request reparations from the loser of the war, but they would help actually uh, the loser of the war to get up again and actually then become a big uh, trade partner. So for the mutual benefit, uh, I think that lesson is, is still p prevalent today and one should think of that concept uh, more often. Do the German people think that reparations after World War I led to the rise of, of uh, Hitler? <clears throat> Certainly that contributed to a sort of a sentiment that they were being treated unfairly to a certain extent. Uh, then you had, of course, a number of other factors like uh, unemployment and so on. Uh, and the, 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 big, the hyperinflation of 1923, etc., many factors coming together. Um, uh, but uh, that definitely, I think, was the lesson that was learned after World War II then. Well, we're talking with the uh, German consul for Florida, and he is Andreas Siegel, and this is WMNF in Tampa, 88.5 FM. How is the Holocaust remembered today in Germany? Well, that is a, a very sensitive question, of course. Um, Germany is very proud to have today uh, a growing Jewish community in, in Germany. And, uh, is it safe for Jews in Germany? Today? Um, I would have said yes uh, some time ago. Nowadays, uh, there are rising concerns of anti-Semitism and you remember certainly that just a few months ago in Halle uh, there was this uh, attack against the synagogue uh, which is uh, obviously a horrendous uh, crime and uh, I think what the solidarity there was, was immense uh, with the Jewish community and there are new measures for uh, guaranteeing the security of uh, Jewish institutions in Germany and there's a growing uh, interest of uh, Israelis, in, in particular young Israelis, who come to, in particular, Berlin uh, and uh, sort of see how this city has become a vibrant, international, diverse city. Both the U.S. and Germany have this rise of the right wing um, and there are resurgent right wing groups in Germany, despite the fact that Nazism, I believe, is outlawed. Yes. And we have a rise of right wing activity here in the U.S. What is Germany doing to, to try to keep that down? Mm -hmm. um, well, in Germany, that has become a factor in politics, I would say, like seven years ago. Uh, a small part, in the beginning, a small, very small party, AFD, uh, which was based on two major sort of uh, anti-attitudes. One was anti-euro and the other anti-immigrants. Uh, these were the two sort of markers of, of that party. Uh, the euro issue has been sort of diluted somewhat in the, in the meantime with Brexit and all these different questions uh, which have happened, unfortunately. Uh, but the migration issue obviously was uh, becoming sort of the center of attention when in 2014-15 um, uh, the chancellor allowed sort of uh, two million refugees from Syria and from the big uh, big crisis uh, migration crisis to to come to Germany, uh, and um, uh, many people thought, in particular, some communities, rural communities, thought they were not able to to handle this situation. Nowadays, and actually for the past two or three years already, these figures have gone down dramatically. Uh, we have still uh, between 150,000, 180,000 uh, migrants coming to Germany per year. 
but that's a figure which the administrations feel is is being handled well and can can be managed. Uh, and the integration in particular of those coming from Syria is going very well. Uh, most of them have been uh, highly professional uh, people and they've been quick in learning the language, the habits and so on. Uh, there are more problems with people coming from the Maghreb uh, area, which is also a phenomenon which we can see in, in France and Belgium. The Maghreb is the, the like Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, uh, northern African uh, countries uh, with uh, also the Muslim, uh, Muslim community uh, with uh, also different ways of life and styles of living, which uh, they sometimes have uh, difficulty sort of adapting to middle European uh, style of life. So mm -hmm. um, there are no, numerous issues which, which uh, have to be addressed in permanence. Uh, but uh, I think that still the, the vast majority of the population is welcoming uh, people who are coming to Germany. And uh, if I look at my own experience, I've been working in a country in Malawi in southeastern Africa, one of the poorest countries in the world. And it, that was during the, or just after, I was there after the Mozambican Civil War. And there have been 10 million uh, people in Malawi and two and a half million refugees from Mozambique in Malawi. Uh, so just imagine 25% of the population you, you add to your own population. Uh, and that was admirably handled by, well, international organization, the United Nations uh, Organization for Refugees, and all, but also the, the government and the people. They welcomed uh, these refugees, and after a few years, of course, they went back. Mm -hmm. What about the Syrian refugees? The fighting has flared up in the last few days in Syria, yes. but for a while there it was calming down. Have some of the Syrian refugees in Germany returned to Syria? Well, I think some at least tried, but, uh, but the situation is still very uncertain, so um, I think most of them are really hesitating, and some are com accommodating very well with their life now in, in Europe. Uh, as as women get more educated, uh, they tend to have fewer babies, and that's what's happening in all the Western democracies. Is that uh, instead of having big families of five or ten children, now women are, if they're having a family, are having one or two children because they're family yes. planning. Yeah. So how does Germany replace the workforce? If if that is that happening in Germany, and mm -hmm. is that a problem that that you yeah. need to yes. develop a skilled workforce, but but your the existing population isn't replacing itself. Exactly. So there are these two factors. One is uh, demography. German, the average German is 47 years old. Uh, I'm just coming from Vietnam, my previous posting, where the average Vietnamese is 29 years old. Uh, so that makes a big difference. Uh, and then you have indeed also the phenomenon that uh, skilled uh, craftsmen, workers, uh, and in particular disciplines that, you're, that are needed in technology changes that are going on, um, that not enough young people are interested in doing these things. So we are actively recruiting outside Germany also um, young people who are interested in particular professions to come to Germany and uh, can be trained there. They have to learn the language, of course, uh, but then they will take advantage of the dual vocational training, which is one of the well-renowned uh, systems of, uh, well, of well, learning. Tell our listeners about that, because a lot of people don't know about how, how Germany mm -hmm. 
make sure that it has both college-educated people and trade skills people? How, how mm-hmm. does Germany do that? Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, vocational training uh, uh, is being done in a sort of a pa- in a parallel way. You have the theoretical and the parallel and in parallel the practical on-site uh, training in a company. So there's a, a company which needs to agree to have an apprentice during that time and also to pay that apprentice. So they're not just uh, so unpaid interns. No, they're, they're not. Paid. They are not unpaid. They have. They get. It's. Uh, it's a very modest uh, sort of minimum uh, wage uh, issue, but anyway, they they get an allowance. They get. They get paid. And at the same time, um, they are studying sort of the, th- the theory of their profession. Does Germany have a minimum wage? Germany has a minimum wage, uh, but uh, there, there's always debate about uh, about whether it's correct at that level or not. So uh, it's uh, it's now <coughs> approaching the uh, uh, the nine nine euro or so, but um, uh, there's a current debate on on increasing it again. But it, that's I think everywhere, any country which has a minimum wage, there's a permanent discussion of adapting it. Yeah, as we do here. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking with the uh, Consul General of the Federal Republic of uh, Germany. He is Andreas Siegel, and this is WMNF in Tampa, 88.5 FM. You're going to be speaking in St. Petersburg this afternoon at the uh, St. Petersburg Conference of World mm-hmm. Affairs. What are you going to be talking about? Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's going to be, uh, well, uh, <clears throat> on, on the question of uh, transatlantic relations and the role of NATO, uh, because there have been many voices uh, that NATO has become obsolete or uh, brain dead or similar vocabulary has been used by various people. Uh, and uh, so we're going to discuss whether that is really the case or whether it's not the case. And I'm, I'm certainly, I worked at NATO headquarters, so I am convinced that NATO is and will remain for a long time, the most important alliance uh, in security terms that we've ever had. What purpose does it serve? Well, it serves uh, a mutual uh, reassurance of uh, European and uh, and transatlantic um, uh, partners like Canada, United States, and and Europe uh, <clears throat> to ensure against all kinds of threats that are here and which are th- changing. In times of Cold War, it was very clear you had an enemy, and that was sort of across the border. Uh, of course, there were conventional and nuclear threats. Today, you have biological, chemical, cyber, uh, space, and all kinds of new threats, including terrorism, of course, which is a major um, uh, change of, uh, of, the, uh, of the threat uh, perspective. And so the NATO alliance is working together in sort of inside to protect itself with a mutual insurance that everyone will protect the other in case of Article 5, which is the uh, sort of saying the state of emergency when really help is needed, but also in cooperation with partners outside NATO. For example, in Afghanistan, uh, the, the Afghanistan force is consisting of, I think, 55 originally uh, countries working uh, in partnership with, with NATO. Is the source of these potential threats, is it based on nations or is it based on terrorist groups? Who's more likely to, to launch an attack on the NATO countries? Well, as we've seen in recent years, um, the classical warfare has become sort of locally isolated. There are local conflicts in different parts of Africa and Asia and so on. 
but uh, the most advanced um, sort of types of warfare now are hybrid. Uh, they can have all the components, uh, like in the, if you look at the Crimea uh, crisis, uh, that was sort of a... Uh, a hybrid hybrid type of war which was not declared but uh, as a matter of fact it, it ended up in the uh, confiscation and occupation of uh, of a territory which belonged to another country which is uh, which has been unprecedented since actually the well World War II so so do Europeans fear Russia I mean is that you're, you're getting it Russia. So, do Europeans today fear Russia? Do you fear Putin? Would you fear Russia if it didn't have Putin? Well, Russia today is certainly not a democracy as we would uh, we would like to have a democracy. And the way uh, Russian politics is being done, and in particular since 2013-14 with this Ukraine uh, crisis... That was a big signal to the world that uh, the rules of the game and international law will not be respected or not under all circumstances. And Germany is, uh, I mean, has learned a lot of lessons over the past centuries in, in, in particular that you have to respect the rules, international rules. And that's also in diplomacy. If you want to have success in diplomacy or if you want to, to achieve something, You need to uh, to talk on the same level of playing field, and then you have to uh, to make compromises, and you have to try to do everything to prevent war. If you fail, if diplomacy fails, then you have the risk of of getting into a war. Is it Putin that that drives the fear? Well, it's the whole s uh, structure of uh, <coughs> of uh, of the way that uh, Russia foreign policy today is uh, is is, uh, is going on. Uh, they are involved in, in a number of conflicts, uh, and uh, and in particular, the uh, the Russia NATO relationship has uh, unfortunately uh, become worse and worse since 2006. There, there was a Since 1990, between 1990 and 2006, there had been excellent uh, development of Russia-NATO relations uh, with a lot of partnership cooperation issues. Uh, but since then, apparently on the Russian side, because maybe of the integration of many Eastern European countries into the NATO alliance and into the EU, um, that has triggered Russian fears that they will be sort of isolated more and more And that's why they have uh, chosen a more, uh, for a less cooperative and a more offensive line. So it's not just Putin. You're, you're, this is the whole apparatus of Russia feels uh, this way. Yes, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't say it's just a person. It's never just a person. Uh, and it, in the situation, if a country under these circumstances takes these 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 attitudes. It is also a matter of how can we discuss the context. I mean, uh, all all the wars that we've witnessed uh, could have been avoided. Uh, World War One, World War Two, if there had been really a comprehensive discussion uh, beforehand. Today we have things like the Munich Security Conference, which uh, I think is a very uh, useful tool uh, to discuss in a more or less informal uh, context. These issues, which uh, which can be also the groundwork for future negotiations on certain of these issues. Hmm. 
there's fighting now in, in Syria. There's fighting in Yemen. And Russia's deeply involved in some of those. Saudi Arabia's deeply involved. Iran is deeply involved. Could a miscalculation lead to a wider war growing out of those conflicts? Well, I am uh, not an expert on that conflict, on the particular conflict, and I can only read the, the media as you do. Um, so I, I think many people are worried that this is, uh, is that could spread further. Uh, but uh, everything is being done at the moment, I think, with a lot of shuttle diplomacy here and there uh, to prevent that from happening. Uh, the German elections are coming up. Not immediately, I think. Uh, we're still still more than a year to go. Do the Russians get involved uh, covertly in German elections? Well, if you go if you go into the social media, you will discover some uh, strange uh, sort of positions that are being uh, uh, promulgated, and you may attribute that to some trolls that are coming from elsewhere. Um, Does but, the German government blame Russia for getting involved? Uh, well, to some extent, uh, we we know that that there are a number of people working on sort of influencing political atmosphere in in certain areas, and there have been some some incidents uh, which which are indicating that this is really the case. Uh, however, that's not a real preoccupation, and uh, because. Uh, German citizens tend to, uh, uh, f- first of all, they don't vote w- electronically or with a uh, with with a uh, uh, application or so, uh, which can be tapered, there, tampered with. There's no with. software involved. No software involved. Uh, the it's just you have a, a piece of paper and you you cross out or you cross uh, a number of uh, of people and uh, that's thrown into a. Uh, polling booth, and then uh, it will be counted. Uh, the Germans trust that system. The Germans trust that system, and uh, I don't remember any um, any protests against uh, results. Well, we're talking with the uh, German consul, and this is WMNF in Tampa. Mm-hmm. So are, are the German people paying attention to the upcoming U.S. presidential race? Oh, yes. Uh, there is a... I mean, in general, I would say Germany is, or German uh, citizens are paying a lot of attention to international events and international politics. And the, actually in our schooling system, we also have a a broad agenda on international affairs. And it's quite interesting that um, uh, recently there has been a poll by Pew uh, Institute and the Kerber Foundation in Germany together Who've, who have uh, asked the question, how do you judge today German-American relations? And the Americans um, have said, and, and increasingly so for the past years, uh, that the relations are very good or good, and that's about 75% of the population thinks that. In Germany, it's just 30% who think that this is, and it's decreasing. Why is that? Uh, well, that uh, needs to be analyzed further, I, I believe. Uh, one uh, idea would be on the American side that maybe the knowledge of what's happening in Germany is still a little bit superficial and marked by traditional positive things like uh, quality products from Germany, Oktoberfest, uh, all these um, sort of associations that you have when, when you think of uh, of Germany, uh, people who have traveled to Germany or the GIs who've come back, 
millions of GIs of good memories of having been in Germany. Uh, so that is one thing, but it doesn't really give you a picture of day-to-day -day life in Germany. Uh, whereas German media uh, are very much sort of looking into the details of what's happening and updating people. Uh, but they, German people know what life is like in the U.S. I think, well, I'm, I'm just getting to that point. I don't think so uh, because uh, they, they have a tendency of amalgamating what an administration does with what life is like. And that is definitely not the same thing. Uh, and that is why possibly the uh, the image of German-American relations is suffering uh, from, well, things that you get to know about tweets here and there and, uh, and measures of the government, which, uh, <clears throat> which then influences sort of a judgment on the whole nation, which myself as a diplomat, I'm trying to fight against this kind of lack of differentiation. I think that problem goes for a lot of countries, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, one last question. How much does Germany spend on diplomacy versus how much it spends on the military? Well, I think uh, uh, there is a uh, new trend that uh, Germany is paying more for hard power, uh, that is, defense capabilities. Uh, as NATO members, uh, uh, NATO has pledged that 2% of the defense of the national Uh, GDP should be spent on defense issues. Now, that doesn't tell you, however, what you actually spend for NATO or what you spend for security. Uh, in, in Germany, we have a broader approach to security. We, we think that uh, diplomacy and, and military capabilities have to go together. You have to have deterrence, of course, uh, but you need to have also a crisis prevention capability and a, enough soft power and cooperation with others uh, in training and in other uh, domains. And that's why Germany is also one of the leaders in development cooperation with, uh, well, basically all the countries in the world. Uh, we are meeting the UN 0.7% um, <coughs> goal with a big GDP. Uh, so that, that, that tells a lot. And uh, so... We we are we are uh, uh, of the we, uh, we have the conviction that that security is uh, always a combina combination between soft power and hard power. When I asked you earlier about the Holocaust, I forgot to ask this. So if I could mm. just add this: mm. Was there much resistance in Germany to the the Nazis either during the rise of Hitler or during the actual period of war uh, when Germany was at war? Was there much resistance within the country to the Nazi philosophy? Well, if you take the numbers, you would say no. Uh, but there have been isolated groups who have been very well organized and trying to fight the, the Nazi regime, uh, mostly after the beginning of World War II. Uh, that tendency increased. But unfortunately, all these groups uh, finally failed in their attempts to uh, overthrow the, the, the regime and uh, and were executed uh, soon after. So uh, one of the most famous is the uh, uh, attack on Hitler on the 14th of July, uh, 1944. So that is... Uh, uh, he, those people are remembered like heroes uh, in, uh, in, in Germany today. Uh, 
uh, and the lessons also learned are uh, also being taught in at school. Uh, so we uh, the, the 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 conditions and the circumstances having led to the rise of the Nazis in the 1920s and 30s. Um, that's uh, largely due also to to internal factors like the Weimar uh, Constitution, which led sort of opened the door uh, also for the Nazis to to get to power. Well, Andreas Siegel, thank you very much for coming by WMNF and telling us more about today's Germany. Thank you very much for having me. That's the Consul General from Miami of the uh, Federal Republic of Germany. He's Andreas Siegel, and he was here at WMNF yesterday. This afternoon, he'll be speaking at the St. Petersburg Conference on World Affairs. All the uh, panel discussions of the conference, uh, which began last night, take place at the University of South Florida in St. Pete at the Student Center and also at the Kate Tiedman College of Business. And you can find out uh, the schedule by going to St. Petersburg Conference on WorldAffairs.com. Uh, the event is uh, open to the public, and there is no charge. Well, if you want to comment about uh, what the uh, Consul General told us, uh, you can email us here in the studio. The address is dj at wmnf.org. Uh, Clark is our phone producer today. We're going to open up the uh, phone lines in just a moment. Take your phone calls. Our phone number is 813-239-9663. And uh, we are just, at least according to our uh, webpage, we're just $19,000 short now from reaching that goal for the fund drive. So if you haven't yet made a contribution to WMNF this year, we hope that today is your day. We hope you make a contribution and keep this listener-sponsored sponsored radio station on the air. Our website, where you can make that contribution, is WMNF.org. WMNF.org. And we're just $19,000 short. We're getting very close now. Well, I'm going to mention a few other uh, items that we could talk about, and let's see where the conversation goes. Uh, the first major test of billionaire Mike Bloomberg's presidential campaign, campaign plays out in the city of High Rollers tonight when he faces questions on the debate stage for the first time. Bloomberg is a last-minute qualifier for the Democratic debate in Las Vegas tonight, joining Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, and Elizabeth Warren. All his rivals have participated in most of the past debates at this point, which may put the former New York City mayor at a disadvantage. The swift rise of Bloomberg's self-funded campaign has landed him in the top tier of hopefuls, although he won't appear on ballots. Uh, he won't appear on Nevada's ballot, uh, nor South Carolina's ballot. First time he appears on the ballot will be Super Tuesday, which is uh, the uh, primary on March 3rd. Florida's primary is March 17th. Two Florida members of Congress are asking the federal inspector general at the Department of Justice to investigate the high pay given to the chief executive of the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Tampa Congresswoman Kathy Castor and Ted Deutsch of Boca Raton say that since almost 99% of the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence funds come from federal dollars, they want an investigation into these allegations. Previously, the Times-Herald Bureau had reported that the agency's board of directors had approved paying its former CEO, Tiffany Carr, $7.5 million in compensation over three years. She heads a nonprofit. 
Documents turned over to the Florida House last week and obtained by the Times-Herald show that Carr was allowed to accumulate and cash in more than $5 million of paid time off over several years, while also receiving her salary, automobile allowance, and travel to and from her home in North Carolina. And so we could talk about this. Our phone number, 813-239-9663. Sean Kinnan, last night on the MNF News and and on the MNF website, uh, had an interview with the local uh, CEO of uh, a uh, domestic abuse organization, uh, domestic abuse prevention organization, and um, she was pretty outraged by this uh, huge salary paid uh, to Tiffany Carr. Well, a South Florida woman convicted in a $205 billion Medicare fraud scheme is among 11 federal inmates who were given clemency yesterday by President Trump. Trump commuted Judith Negron's sentence yesterday. She's been held in federal prison in Central Florida since her conviction. Negron was convicted in 2011 on 24 counts of conspiracy, health care fraud, and money laundering, among other charges. Federal prosecutors say Negron and two co-defendants carried out a $205 million Medicare fraud scheme in South Florida. And President Trump also granted a pardon and clemency to a Texas construction company owner whose family donated more than $200,000 to his presidential campaign. The construction company owner, Paul Pogue, pleaded guilty to underpaying his federal income taxes by nearly $500,000 and received three years probation. According to the Federal Elections Commission, Paul's family made more than $200,000 in donations to the Trump Victory PAC and Trump's official presidential campaign. Now, the president, when he was asked about this yesterday, said he did nothing wrong by granting these pardons. The attorney general is a man with incredible integrity. Now, just so you understand, I chose not to be involved. I'm allowed to be totally involved. I'm actually, I guess, the chief law enforcement officer of the country. Well, there was actually uh, uh, talking about uh, the uh, Roger Stone case. But you're listening to WMNF in Tampa, 88.5 FM. And uh, James uh, writes this, uh, tuned in late. Did you ask your guest, does he see the U.S. following the same path as 1930s Germany? No, I, I, I did not ask that. But I asked several questions about the rise of the right wing uh, in Germany and, and uh, also in the U.S. and what he thought. So, uh, James, uh, um, uh, thanks a lot for your email. You can uh, comment about any of these topics. Our phone number is 813-239-9663. And our email address is dj at wmnf.org. And uh, let's go to Alan, who's in Tampa. Alan, thanks a lot for calling in. What's on, what's on your mind? Hey, Rob, thanks so much for taking my call. I just want to say with regard to that CEO taking $7 million dollars, I'm a person that works hard, and I, I do okay. I can't complain. I try to be as charitable as I can, and stuff like that makes me really think twice before I send a check to an organization that I want to support because I feel like my money is not going to the cause. And I, I wish that organizations would make very plain on their solicitation, this is what we spend on staff, this is what we spend on fundraising, this is where your money's going. And then I'd be more free to write a check. I mean, I'm like in the circle of friends. I feel good about it. I support the Humane Society. I volunteer there. And I see where the money goes, and I feel good about it. But all these other charities, when I get them in the mail now and all, 
I feel like, you know what, I'm not stupid. I'm not going to send him a check. And it's a shame because a lot of them are probably very deserving, could use the money, and would use the money properly, but I hold back. I don't give as much as I could. And so shame on this woman, shame on that organization, I think, because they, they it's counterproductive. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people agree with you, uh, Alan. I, 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 I certainly am more skeptical. But, but you know, in this case, this was a uh, an umbrella group, and the local groups, like the d- local domestic shelters, they're hurting for money, and so they weren't. I, I don't think that they actually contributed money to this woman's salary, but somehow this arrangement was made so that she set up this. Or, or this uh, umbrella group was set up for a statewide organization, and then she got paid seven and a half million dollars over three years. But I don't. I, my guess is that I'm pretty sure this is true. Casa and the Spring and the other local domestic abuse uh, shelters were not paying her salary. The money came from the feds somehow. But still, you know, the federal government uh, should be looking at how it spends this money. And and are there other cases where people are getting money from the federal government and and <laughs> being paid exorbitant salaries. That's, it's an important question. I think that's why the members of Congress are right. There should be an investigation. How did this happen? Well, thanks for bringing it to light. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. And thanks for making a contribution to MNF. Uh, 813-239-9663 is our phone number. Let's go to Rich in Largo. Rich, thank you for calling. What would you like to say? Uh, the only thing I have to say is apparently the Germans don't like our tweets either. <laughs> That's he was being very kind when he did that. He yes, was he a very was. low key he, he, criticism. He, I think yeah. he he kind of beat you on tact. <laughs> well, he because uh, I've seen uh, or I've heard I've heard you be so wonderful to some of these. Uh, but he was he was subtly saying that the German people don't like what's going on in the U.S. and that the tweets and what's going on in Washington with the president. He was subtly saying that he never mentioned President Trump right, in right, that section. Right, yet. right. He had he had tact. He's a diplomat. He is. He gets paid to do that. Yeah, he does. And he's got it down. He, yeah. he knows how to say it and what to say. And I thought that was beautiful. That was the the whole thing I got out of the whole conversation that. That, that I listened to with him was, and and you were as as normal, uh, which is very good. But uh, he had you beat on that one. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't mind being beat beaten by a professional diplomat. Right, right, right. But uh, and especially a German who <laughs> who was putting down our fearless leader. Yes. All right, Rich. Thanks All right, a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Great to hear from you, Rich. Thank you. Uh, 813-239-9663 is our phone number. Our email address is dj at wmnf.org. Uh, how this, uh, how this uh, CEO of this uh, domestic violence organization in Florida got $7.5 million, I think, uh, rankles everybody, no matter which side of the uh, political aisle you're on. And um, I'm sure there's going to be more to happen more fallout from it, uh, thanks to the newspapers, because it was the uh, the Tampa Bay Times and the Miami Herald uh, newsroom that first uncovered uh, the uh, high compensation for this woman. Well, again, our phone number is 813-239-9663. Email address is dj at wmnf.org. 
And uh, thanks to uh, Stephanie, who's in Ringwood, New Jersey. Thank you. And she's all of MNF, and she just made a contribution. Thank you, Stephanie. Remember, if you're on vacation uh, down here, uh, please take WMNF home with you. Just uh, download our app. It's free. Just go to your uh, smartphone, down, look in the app store for WMNF, and the uh, app will uh, let you take MNF anywhere in the world. We're, uh, when you're traveling, if you're uh, traveling to Canada or traveling to California or uh, Michigan, uh, you can you can t- listen to WMNF wherever you go. And let's go to uh, Chuck, who's in Tampa. Hi, Chuck. Thank you for calling in. Hi, how you doing, Rob? I'm good. How are you? Good. I just was wondering what the, the debate's tonight, right? I was wondering if the, the billionaire Oompa Loompa Bloomberg is going to get his, uh, <laughs> his milk crate to stand on. At the debate. Yeah, what do you think? Do you think he should have a milk crate, uh, or should he just... Uh... Well, if they stack, if you put two milk crates, you got to stack them upside down so they're stable. Yeah. You know how when they, if you stack milk crates the other way, they, they move. If you put them upside down, you know, one on top of each other, he should be fine. Yeah, yeah. But I just wonder, because I know he had, he had asked for it. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see him on stage and, and uh, how he's able to debate and, and uh, how well he fights back. So, so Chuck, you're, uh, you're a present Trump supporter. What, what do you think about Bloomberg? I mean, would Bloomberg even sway you 1% towards voting for a Democrat? Or you, you're, uh, you're an always I, Trumper, right? I'll put it to you this way. I think it's a disgrace. I would rather vote for Bernie Sanders than vote for Bloomberg coming in there and buying his way in. At least Bernie stands for something. I mean, I would vote for Bernie before I voted for that guy. He has nothing in common with... He don't. He doesn't even talk to... Uh, he doesn't even connect with the American people, Bloomberg. He just so, he's going to buy his way in. I think it's a disgusting. Chuck, but there's no chance you would vote for Bernie, is there? If I had to have a choice, no, let's say that Trump was still in the race, though. If it was Trump and Bernie. Oh, you, well, you, Trump. Trump. Trump all the way. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, Chuck, thanks a lot, and thanks for bringing up the milk carton. All right. Thank you. All right. 813-239-9663 is our phone number. Steve's in Tampa. Hey, Steve, you're on MNF. What would you like to say? Hi, Rob. Thank you. Um, I wanted to comment on the caller who was talking about how you can identify the, uh, um, the, the quality of a not-for-profit before you donate to it. Um, I spent my career in uh, not-for-profit fundraising. There's an organization called GuideStar, uh, which is a website, G-U-I-D-E-S-T-A-R, a GuideStar. They have every um, not-for-profit in the United States. They have their 1099 tax returns, which, which give all the information that uh, that caller was looking for, what they spend money on, fundraising, etc. Um, it's very telling because I get the calls too. You can usually tell if a professional caller is calling; they're going to take quite a big chunk out of your donation. Well, that that's true, and and I guess the the other good place to look is Charity Navigator, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Thank so you. I couldn't remember that. Yeah, one. those and those are great. Those are essential uh, tools. Um, you know, if you're especially, I always like to look at the CEO pay. So. So if you're worried about your charity, uh, I mean, it's not just the professional fundraisers, and I, I agree with you. I think that's a problem. Um, well, 
you know, we have to remember that very talented people work for not-for-profits, and we shouldn't think that just because they're making a salary that's commensurate with the private field, um, you know, not-for-profit doesn't mean you can't make money. <laughs> well, I, I agree. I mean, if, if you've got a big organization and you've, and, and you've got to raise a lot of money, but but I think once you get into $7.5 million for three <laughs> years, then that's a little exorbitant for a nonprofit. I, I agree. That, that, and that's going to really hurt people's ears. <laughs> All right. Steve, thanks. Thanks for bringing up well, GuideStar. Yeah, thank you. All right. Bye. Yeah, the two uh, websites that you can check on uh, your local charity are uh, GuideStar and Charity Navigator. And you can actually, as, as Steve said, you can check on any charity in the country and uh, find out a lot about their operations and what kind of ranking they get. Um, let's go to John, who's in Bradenton. Hey, John, you're on MNF. What would you like to say? Hey, hey John. Rob, good morning. Good morning. Uh, good afternoon. Or, well, I just want to say it's a pleasure to uh, be on your show. And uh, I'm an undecided voter. But uh, I get tired of all this uh, talk about Bloomberg buying the election. Um, you can't buy an election. I, I look back in the history and I think of, uh, for example, Steve Forbes. That guy had all the money in the world. Uh, he didn't get elected. Even if I look now, Tom Steyer, he's got all the money. He, he, you can't buy an election. Uh, I lived in New York a couple of years while uh, Bloomberg was mayor there, and I thought he did a really, really good job. Uh, to belittle him about his size, to me, just perpetuates that uh, ugliness that's in politics today. Quite frankly, when the world is burning and uh, uh, we've got so many things going on, uh, it's the size of a person's heart and intellect, not their physical stature that I'm interested in in leading the country. Yeah, I th- you're right. That was a cheap shot, and I should have taken issue when, when Chuck made that. I, I, I always know that Chuck is going to be sarcastic, and so, uh, but I probably should have not let him make that cheap shot. Do you think that Bloomberg could fix, I mean, if the world is on fire, do you think that Bloomberg has the talent and the intellect and, and the capacity to, to fix some of the major problems that we're facing? You know, I, I think that's a great question. And for me, Bloomberg uh, is not really the answer, uh, but I think he could serve as a uh, interregnum between what's going on now and, say, somebody like uh, uh, Mayor Pete in a couple years after he's uh, kind of uh, uh, matured a little bit. And we got uh, opportunities for people to step in and uh, uh, complete this job because, quite frankly, you know how it is, Rob. Uh, we didn't set the world on fire in a day, and it's not going to take a day for us to put it out. Yeah. But, you know, uh, uh, it, it's, it's, you know, I know people get tired of hearing it, but as long as we have politics of contention, as long as we have, you know, that divided aisle, we're not going to get things done. And so uh, Bloomberg, to me, deserves a chance is all I'm saying. I, I Like I say, I'm an undecided voter myself. But all this stuff about him uh, uh, buying the election, I think, is foolishness. Uh, I don't watch much TV, but uh, what I've seen is a, a confident job with his advertising and really, in my opinion, uh, kind of an intelligent move. Uh, why should he jump in when there's 24 candidates? Uh, you know, he, he bypassed a lot of that stuff and has uh, is, is risen in the polls. It seems to me like his strategy is working well, and we should kind of, like, take that into consideration, not this kind of, like, cheap dismissal of he's, he's buying the president or attempting to buy the presidency. And, and I mean, John, quite frankly, how else do you get it today? Uh, John, as an undecided voter, what's the number one issue that you want the next president to address? Is there something that, that you want them to look at? And um, oh, that, Go ahead. First, first, 
personally, I, I, I really like what Steyer has to say because uh, I can really uh, get behind what he's saying about uh, taking the problems that we have with our environment and using that as a unifying factor to move forward. And I think that's such an intelligent way to uh, achieve this, but I, I just know that that may not be the most practical uh, uh, thing on people's minds. So, uh, you know, I, I understand, hey, just by the fact I'm an MNF listener puts me on the fringe anyway, you know. <laughs> I don't think so. There's a, there's a lot of beans. You'd be surprised how many mainstream people listen to MNF. Um, you're, not, you're not a fringe. So any chance you'd vote for Trump? Uh, you know, there's really no chance that I would vote for him. Uh, and, and even if there were, the number one thing that Trump had, besides all the obvious, the number one thing that's let me down with Trump is, is that he talked all this infrastructure and I, I'm not seeing any of that. So that was kind of the one position that I supported him on. Uh, but, uh, especially now after uh, his pardons of yesterday, the day before, with uh, Blagovich, uh, my jaw just hit the floor on that one, to be honest with you, Rob. Yeah, those are amazing. All right, John, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, thanks, man. Enjoy your show. Thank you for saying that. Um, Well, we've got a bunch of emails in. I'll read a few of them. Uh, uh, Kevin writes this. um, uh, Does anybody know how much the CEO of the Red Cross makes? Is it 300000 I haven't looked that up recently, Kevin, so I don't know. and uh, let's see, some of these other emails, some are compliments. I'm not going to read those. Uh, uh, 813-239-9663. Let's see, uh, this, this one from uh, Elhaven says, uh, Bloomberg seems to be rising quickly. I fear Bernie is getting sabotaged. I almost feel like it could come down to people picking between the lesser of two evils, uh, writes uh, that person. And then uh, Peter writes this, what's your beef with Bernie? Why is he not your number one candidate? I don't know if, uh, who Pete's directing that to, but Pete, thank you for that. Um, we try to uh, uh, give a lot of airtime to a lot of different candidates. In fact, I think we've only played two speeches so far, one by uh, Bernie and one by Elizabeth Warren. Uh, and then um, Anonymous writes, so where, where's Charlie Manson on the pardon list? Uh, all right, Anonymous, thank you for that. So uh, if you want to comment about today's show, call us up at 813-238-8001 or record your comment on extension 115. I'll play your comments back tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock. Thanks for listening to Radioactivity. This is WMNF in Tampa. NOLA is next. And thanks to Clark for answering the phones. We're going to go out with a little Billy Joel. Space monkey mafia, who